Good evening. Hope you all got a nap this afternoon. And don't plan on one now. I trust that's true. And don't say you got a big enough one this morning. That's, you, you weren't allowed to sleep that long. We're in Exodus chapter 17 here in just a moment. One last plug, one last chance to say uh, our college event next week. Don't forget the potluck. I, I, what this means is... And we've got to spell this out a little bit as we think there'll be a lot of college people here even that morning. And being potluck means we've got to bring a lot of food because, um, I mean, you know, college students aren't just going to bring a bunch. They might run to KFC and bring a bucket of chicken, but uh, probably not. And so we've got to bring a little extra. And that's what we're going to do, kind of show them, hey, we, we, we care about you. We're going to make sure you're fed and, and all that stuff too. So bring a lot of food for this potluck next Sunday. Sometimes... The church kind of jumps in there and says, let's supplement this thing. And sometimes we just say, let's see how bad the people want to be together and eat. That's what this one is. Let's see how bad you want to be together. All right? Or see how bad you... See how much you want to be together. That's what I mean. Uh, so, so bring a lot of food next Sunday. And you never know. We might break into an evening service right back there in the fellowship room and not even come in here. You never know what will happen. Spirit moves in mysterious ways, right? Elders are saying, no, it doesn't. We're going to be in here. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) Exodus chapter 17. I'm going to risk going a little bit political on this story as we start out, but I want you to consider this emblem you know well. It's the American flag. 50 stars, 13 stripes. You probably know what the colors represent. For a lot of people, it has become just a point of contention, like in the NFL and all these places, but I, I want to go beyond those layers into something else. For how many of you does this still remain a very uh, emotional and powerful image for you? How many still? I figured that would be the case here in Arkansas, and I'm hoping it's that way across the United States. This is a flag that represents so many other things. We go back to Iwo Jima, if you remember this. This is the most iconic image. I've seen this in Washington, D.C., and it's one of the most impressive things to be at when these soldiers in the midst of of battle decide we're going to raise the flag right here. And what an emotional thing to risk their life even to make sure that flag is standing. And so much that in 2001, when the Pentagon got hit, we remember this image where they made sure that we have our, our, our national flag up there. In the Civil War, it was such a strange thing, but people, and it wasn't even the U.S. flag, it was regiments from different areas of the country. They had their flag and they fought, and they had somebody, not that one yet, we'll get to there in a second, but as the Civil War was was being fought, these different battles, these men would carry these flags into into the battle, and then when one of them was shot and went down, somebody put their gun away, and they went and they got that flag and lifted it up. They felt like the flag showing was such a significant morale builder that it was worth losing another gun. That's how serious we are about seeing our flag. Well, you know what this one is. This is in the Smithsonian. I've seen it Go on the next one. Yeah, this, this is the actual flag from the, from the War of 1812 and the Battle of Baltimore. It's Francis Scott Key actually looked at this one. This is the one that after the battle cleared and after the smoke kind of faded away and drifted off with the wind, he looked up there and the flag was still there and he wrote our national anthem. And our whole national anthem is this. There was a battle. We didn't know how it would go. And then all of a sudden we looked up and the flag was still there and it just bought this inspiration. Inspiration back in 1814. Also, inspiration in 2018. So when you look at that flag and everything it represents, 
No, we're not a perfect country. No, we haven't treated everybody equally, but the ideals of this country are worth standing for, are worth talking about and honoring in the way we live our lives. That's the whole idea behind this flag, and it's just a symbol for everything we are, a symbol of our unity and our purposes and our ideals. The flag. Not just a piece of material. Uh, school kids tomorrow, and especially elementary grades, will begin their day looking at one of these flags. And they'll pledge their allegiance to this country. And then you'll have ASU games starting pretty soon, right? September 1st against SEMO, we're going to whoop them. But, but as you start that, you're going to take your hat off and you're going to put your hand over your heart and you're going to hear National Anthem played as we look at a giant flag. Something about this stirs within us and causes to rise up within us such determination and such patriotism. Consider that what a flag does for us when you think about this story in Exodus chapter 17. The people were in the same spot where Moses had struck the rock and provided plenty of water miraculously for the entire nation of Israel who are marching their way from Egyptian slavery down to Mount Sinai. And they haven't made it to Sinai yet. They're still in the, in the wilderness, this just very barren part of the world. And some disgruntled cousins who were nomads, not in this area but around them, these are offspring of Esau, the Amalekites. They decide we're going to whip up on Israel right here. Israel's done nothing to instigate this. We've done, they've done nothing to cause a fight or pick a fight. They are in no position to battle. They don't want to fight. They've never fought in their life. They're in battle formation. That's how they march and that's how they camp, but they are not fighters. They've never fought in their life. They're not picking a fight. I don't know what these Amalekites were thinking. Maybe it wasn't a fight over a well because there was no well. God had to provide miraculously out of this rock, but maybe, maybe the Amalekites are so impressed with this water source that they've never seen before and cannot explain that they want to take this land. Maybe they think Israel has, has invaded their territory, but Israel is just marching through. They're just staying temporarily. Whatever the reason, the Amalekites look at Israel as easy pickings. We're just going to fight them. We're going to pick a fight with these people. And Joshua, whom we've never met, this is the first time he appears in Scripture, is chosen by Moses and he says, pick you out some men. Pick you out some men of these slaves turned sojourners and nomads and let's get ready to fight. How good can an, a, a man fight who's been a slave all these years and just now is given freedom and he's kind of sojourning, camping out of a, a, out of a suitcase? How good a fighter is he going to be? I don't know, but Joshua's willing to take the fight up. And he takes these men into battle. And while he's battling, here's Moses saying, I'm going to be at the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hands. I'm going to be up here and you fight down there, Joshua. So Joshua does what he's told. He picks the men out and he starts the fight. And there's Moses up here with the rod of God in his hands holding it up, standing on the mountain overseeing the battle. And as long as, I'm not sure if God told him or if he just figured this out by watching, as long as he holds his hands up, the battle goes great, but then when he gets a little tired, he notices all of a sudden they get the upper hand. So he, op he uppers his hand, and Israel starts winning again. He starts noticing this pattern. He gets worn out, and so Aaron and Hur, Caleb's son, rolls up a rock, and he has Moses stand on it, and they lift up his hands for him. They gain the momentum. I don't know what Moses was doing. It's not, 
necessarily a posture of prayer here. It's not a magic formula. It's an indication to all of Israel, don't worry, the Lord is fighting for you. And so Moses sits there, Aaron and her hold up his hands, and Joshua and the people of Israel overwhelm the Amalekites, and they go running off for their lives. Soon as the battle is won, Moses gives the, I mean, God gives this command. First time ever writing in Scripture. I want you to sit down, Moses, and I want you to write this story. I want you to record this on a scroll. And I want you to describe this battle. This writing is a way they can always look back and get the details without being able to have video like we do. We don't, they don't have video replay. They don't have anything like this. This is the only way you're going to go back in time and capture what happened here and never forget it. And then I want you to mark my words too. Mark my words right now. Not only did I give you the victory that day, but I'm, uh, mark my words right now. This nation of people who scattered out, the Amalekites, these cousins of yours, these offspring of Esau who, who tried to interfere in my purposes, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the planet. I am, not Israel. I am. But it's going to take generations. I want you to write it down. Now, this is all great. We write things down for posterity, right? We write things down for history. But it doesn't do any good if no one goes back and reads it. We've got, think about it, you've got notes, you've got records that go back a long way, but if you never go back and read them, what good has it done to you? What good is it for you to have all these things written down to remember, but you never go back and read them? This is the danger of Scripture, church. We have a great record of God's working in history. We have a great record of how God has intervened in history for His people. But if we don't go back and read it, and reread it, and reread it, it's as good as if it was never written in the first place. Isn't that true? You've got to go back and read this thing. Now, why do we know they didn't? A few months from here, they're going to have a chance to send out spies into the promised land. They're going to send out spies. I don't know why they sent out spies. I don't know why God had them to. What was the point of it? I don't know. We'll argue that when we get there. But he sends out spies and they come back. We can't take it. Why? Because the Amalekites are there. What had God written down for them? What did he written down for them just a few months later? I am going to destroy them from the face of the planet. They cannot be, they cannot be the reason you don't go in and take the promised land because the Amalekites are there. I've got their days are numbered. Did you not read what I just wrote to 20 months ago? There's some amazing promises and blessings from God in Scripture, church, but if we don't read them, we're living as if they weren't true. We're living in ignorance of the great things God's promised us, and what a waste. What a waste to think that He's made these guarantees to us, and yet we don't live our lives with confidence because of them, because we are ignorant of them, we've forgotten them, we've forgotten that they're there, we don't jog our memory, we don't come to Bible class and have our kids learn what these things are as they're growing up, and as they get older in teen class, we decide we want to talk about all the current events, and we don't need to go back into that book and read all those promises of God, and we are suffering for it. We're raising generations of people who don't know the promises promises of God and don't have the confidence and have the promise of the Holy Spirit in them. They're ignorant of it. And when you are ignorant of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, you're going out there without his full power in your life. What a shame.
He has to tell the Corinthians, do you know why you can't sleep with that prostitute? Because you've got the Holy Spirit! You've forgotten. And when you forget, it's like you don't even know. It's great to have things written, but we've got to go back and read them. Moses also, this is not from the command of God. This is Moses from his own motivation builds this altar. This is not a worship place. This is a memorial. He builds this altar. I don't know what it looks like, but he calls it the Lord is my banner. Today we would call it the Lord is my standard or the Lord is my flag. It would be like the Washington, D.C. memorial. To always remember what that flag means and what inspires and what should inspire in us. They learned something that day that they never wanted the nation to forget. They wanted something to be there. And when they looked at it, they were automatically reminded. What were they reminded of when they looked at this altar and this memorial for what God had done? What is it that God is our flag? I think maybe it had the rod of God. Maybe it had that thing holding up between two rocks or something. And people want to remember when God does this that he shows up. What is this banner? What is this flag? What's it supposed to mean? When they look at it, they know the real power behind Israel is not them and their battle strategy. Surely you know that it's not really a strategy when a guy holds up a rod on a hill overlooking a battle. That's how you win. Surely we know that's not how God's people win. Right? Do I really have to tell you that they didn't win it by their rocks and bows and arrows that day? The Lord is our flag. He's the power behind everything we do. And He's for Israel. He's Israel's God so long as they're faithful to Him. He is Israel's power source. He is their inspiration. They look at that altar and they realize it's not about us and our righteousness and our goodness. It's about the God we serve and He's ours and He loves us and He'll fight for us so long as we're faithful. And the ideal of obedience, they're going to know this, when they obey God, they win. That's what He wants them to remember when they look at this flag. It represents the power behind them, the God they serve. It represents the entire nation. Because even though God gave the battle, the people did something that day that mattered. Moses was to stand there and hold up his hands. That's clearly what God wanted. And he obeyed. Israel, Joshua, needed to fight. That's what God told Moses to tell him. And he went out and he led like a general, though he'd never led a battle in his life. But he went out and he got men who had never fought before who went out and they fought that battle. They did throw rocks. They did have spears. They did have something. They went out and fought because that's what God told them to do. And even when Moses got tired, what happens? He has other people come up and hold up his arms. This nation did do what God told them to, and as a result, they won. What's the message for God's people? Sometimes you won't understand why God tells you what He tells you. Sometimes you have no idea the significance of the commands He gives us. It's not your job to understand them. It's not your job to even always be able to explain to people why they are as they are. It is your job to do them. It is your job to do them. And that's what this flag represents. As long as we do what he tells us, if it's march around a, a city wall 13 times and blow a trumpet, if that's what he tells us, we're going to do it. As dumb as that sounds and as much a mockery as it is the world, we're going to do it. And when we do, the walls are going to fall and we're going to whoop them. Because God told us to. That's what him, God as our 
flag means. And when we get tired and sometimes we don't want to do it, what do you do? You look at that flag and you remember, I need to do what God tells me to, but sometimes I don't want to. Sometimes I'm tired. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Have you heard this before? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I really want to do what God wants me to, but I'm weary and I'm anxious and I'm tired. What do I do then? Well, you need to make sure that you have friends named Aaron and her. You need to make sure you have friends who can come up beside you and say, you know what God's command says? And you say, yes, but my, my, I'm wanting to, but I just can't do it. And you have friends who love you enough to hold up your hands and help you complete the commands of God, even when you don't feel like you have the strength. That's what you are for. Because the fact that God is our flag, not my flag, not your flag, He's our flag, means that we all submit to it. And when we see someone weakening in their obedience to God, when you see someone, no pun intended, flagging in their faithfulness, the sight of the flag, God being our flag, means that I've got an obligation to my fellow believer to walk alongside that believer and hold up his hands and help him to spot those areas in life where he needs to obey even when he doesn't want to. And sometimes that means I'm going to risk my friendship with you in order to remind you of what our common allegiance is. We do pledge allegiance to a flag. It's not an American one. It's to our God that we serve, and we are all submitting to him. That's, that's why you're here on Sunday night, sitting where you are listening to a message from the Word, and we all abide by it. We say we're going to live this way. And we all remind ourselves in this flag that obedience is connected to reward. They look at this flag, and it becomes more than just an altar to remember that event. It becomes a morale builder. Listen to these scriptures as the future comes into the present, especially as it concerns the Amalekites. God has a great, and I'm, I'm going to tell you what I think here. This is a little different than what the text looks like. If you'll look at chapter 17, this is not on a screen yet, but notice verse 16. This is so strange. He says, uh, Moses built an altar, called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek for generation to generation. There's nobody can really explain this. It's a weird sentence in whatever original language Hebrew that is, a hand going for the throne of God. What I think this means is that there was a nation who rose up and tried to distort the plan of God, who tried to change the throne decision of God. They tried to take God's place to get in the way of God's plan. And when they rose up their hand and touched the throne of God, God let them know who's in charge. And the Amalekites didn't just battle a nation that day. They, they tried to thwart the plans of God. And when you get in the way of the plan of God that must move forward, you get into the wrong enemy hands. You become an enemy of God, and he comes after you, and he is heartless, and he will come after his enemies, and he will defeat them. And the Amalekites are bound for destruction. Deuteronomy chapter 25, Moses, right before he gets in the promised land says remember what Amalek did to you on the way you came out of Egypt how he attacked you on the way and when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail right those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God God remembered this and Moses said don't you forget this Israel when you get in the promised land Amalek must be destroyed God has ordained it we're taking these people out you get in the book of Joshua 
book of Judges, where you have them taken over by different nations. Judges chapter 3, Judges chapter 6, Judges chapter 7, Judges chapter 12. The Amalekites keep being a thorn in the side of the Israelites. When's God going to keep his promise? 1 Samuel chapter 15, God says to Saul, Saul, you go and you annihilate this nation. Why? Because of what they did back here in Exodus 17. I do not forget when somebody raises their fist against the throne of God. I do not forget they become my enemy forever, and I will obliterate them. And Saul, you are the one to do it. Does he do it? No. God wants him to, but he doesn't do it. 1 Chronicles chapter 4. The people of Simeon. These weird no-name people in the days of Hezekiah. Listen. These, registered by name, came in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and destroyed their tents and uh, whatever uh, those people are who were found there and marked them for destruction to this day and settled in their place because there was picture there, there pasture there, sorry, for their flocks. These are the people of Amalek, we're going to read. And, one, and some of them, 500 men of the Simeonites, went to Mount Seir, having as their leaders, those people, that nobody knows their names of anymore. And they defeated the remnant of the Amalekites who had escaped. Finally, the days of Hezekiah, the remnants of Amalek are destroyed, but not all of them. Not all of them. That took another day. The offspring of King Agag has a certain name. Anybody know somebody later in Scripture, chronologically, who is an offspring of Agag, who shows up and causes trouble again? His name is Haman. Shows up one last time, one last claim, and actually thinks he's got the upper hand because he's got this special edict that says you can destroy the Jews on this day. Somebody's got to intervene, and who does it, church? Say her name. Esther intervenes, says, no, you ain't doing it. And so they're able to defend themselves and not only defend themselves, but they're willing to go on the attack. And who do they annihilate completely as a result of this turnabout that God causes? The Amalekites, represented by King Agag, and forever they're wiped off the face of the earth. God will keep his word. He says it takes generations sometimes. But God is going to mark those who try to rise up in defiance of him and overtake his purposes and his plans. Let that be a note to anybody who thinks you can just simply mess with the plan of God and get away with it unscathed. It's a great story. The American flag means a lot to all of us, and when they raise it, we all kind of rise up with this certain sense of patriotism. The Olympics makes us feel this way. Sporting events make us feel this way, but our flag, church, there's a reason why churches don't usually have American flags in the auditorium. We have a higher allegiance. We have a higher allegiance to a higher authority, and sometimes that higher allegiance clashes with the lower one, and when that happens, which one must we go with? The higher one. The American flag cannot have a prominent place in our auditorium because there's a higher flag. Now, I don't know what this flag looks like. It represents God, and it causes us to realize we've got this higher authority. I would argue that there's a cross on it. 
That's the moment when God showed his, his nature and his power and his love most clearly, but it's also because of it being a perfect image for what our job description is. Because not only do we glory in a cross where God climbed up in, as a, in the form of his son and died on that cross, not only was that the moment of our greatest glory and the greatest revelation of the nature of God, but it's also the job you've assigned to do. When you take up your cross and follow him, that's what you do. This flag not only represents what God has done, it represents what we are to do in response. He is the one we follow. And if that means we take up our cross, we take up our cross and we follow him. And that's everything we are. We lift that thing up and we sing about it. We talk about it. And we make sure in every worship service, even when the sermon is about something else, and even when the songs are about each day I'll do a golden deed, and all these things, we stop in the middle of our worship service and say, we're going to remember the cross. Every time, no matter what else we do in the rest of service, we stop and we remember the cross. It's our flag. It's our standard. It's our banner. It's everything we are and everything that we rely upon. God is our banner. Nothing can separate us from Him. If God be for us, who can be against us? Don't back down. God is our banner. Anyone who stands in opposition to the purpose of, of God must remember 2 Thessalonians 1, chapter, verses 5 through 10. And if God is our banner, as long as we stand with Him, He stands for us, Luke chapter 12. Flag is important, and we do have one. The fact that it's not visible doesn't matter. May we always stand in reverence of it. May we never fail or be ashamed to pledge our allegiance to it, to our God, our flag. If there's anyone who's not bowed your knee, confess the name of Jesus in front of a group of people. Name him as your Savior and decide even before he makes me bow my knee, I'm going to do it voluntarily and receive the benefits of it. If you've not done that, I beg you to do it. There's no greater dominion to be part of than the kingdom of God. And he is king and you are subject and you might as well start now submitting to him. If you don't, listen, you can fight all you want to and you can, can stand for yourself and your opinions all you want to. But you will bow your knee and you will confess with your tongue and you will submit an allegiance. It's just you won't get any benefits from it. You'll get to spend your eternity away from him like you seem to be voting for now. If you have responded to him and for whatever reason you've, rise, you've risen up and given him your declaration of independence and how you've acted, and you need to submit once again to the sovereignty and lordship of Christ, it's great to serve Jesus as Savior. But you must serve him as Lord as well. And if you're subject to that invitation, come forward as we stand and as we sing.